Welcome to Lamniforms Radio, a podcast where I interview musicians and artists about their latest projects. My name is Ian Corey, and I am the songwriter in the band Lamniforms. I love learning about an artist's process, their intentions, and who they are as people. Today I am joined by Daniel Schur. Schur is the drummer and composer for the instrumental band Horse Torso. If that seems like a vague description, that's because Horse Torso's music is difficult to categorize. Informed by jazz, free improvisation, and the harsher end of the math rock scene, Horse Torso are surprising and exciting and disturbing in equal measure. I was able to catch up with Schur while he sat at his drum kit between lessons that he teaches to talk about his musical background, his thoughts on the place of humor in music, and the creative process behind Horse Torso's latest album, Micro Pianist. Thank you for listening. Does it ever get any easier to hear your own voice or, or no? Yeah, I, I would say at this point I'm okay with it. Um, I guess like the benefit is that in my own band, I also have been like the singer mm. or like the screamer is more accurate, you know? Right. <laughs> so I've gotten pretty used to just like hearing myself under those circumstances. And definitely when you get into a situation where you're recording like the same thing over and over again, you kind of have to get over the parts that are just in, in, inherently cringy, you know? Yeah. Oh yeah. No, it's like pulling a bandit off. I, that's how it is for my YouTube videos. I do like drumming YouTube videos. And like the first, when I first started, I was just like, all right, you're going to have to just get over it. You know, like, cause it's, it's still the most cringe thing ever for me, mm-hmm. but I'm like, whatever, like people it's out there now. And like people, if it was as cringe as it sounds to me, like people would be telling me, right well it's kind of like i feel like the internet is a great equalizer in that way is that there are going to be people that are going to tell you it's cringe no matter what you're doing you know like i think especially sort of germane to the kind of music that you make i always think about that one behold the octopus playthrough video where people Mm -hmm. are like this is the worst music of all time i can't believe they let these people on here you know and it's like oh yeah it sounds worse without drums but (laughs) it's not that bad Yeah, I, the best compliment I could get is like, it sounds like people in your band don't know how to play their instruments. <laughs> I'm like, ooh, like we're, we must be killing it right now. Like, cause this person thinks we literally like don't know what notes we're supposed to play. So yeah, that kind of, just to jump right into it, I guess, this kind of gets to one of the interesting things that I find about your music is that how much of it is supposed to sound like pure chaos versus how much of it is like orderly you know because now that i've spent a bit more time with it i'm like oh i'm starting to catch a few things here and there i can i can see some patterns starting to emerge but i can also tell that the intended effect is not for that necessarily so (laughs) yeah chaos versus order where do you stand (laughs) right um well i guess things blending together is kind of at the core of maybe the goal i'm trying to accomplish because like obviously you know everything has some kind of structure to it even if it's literally free improvisation like as much as i do take inspiration from a lot of like 
free improvisation artists and like that kind of like aesthetic you you see patterns emerging in that you know and you it's mm-hmm. like the whole idea of you know you're not playing things that you practiced you're playing things that are completely what you felt in the moment and reacting to you know the way the stars are aligned and the way your dog is howling or whatever i i mean i fully believe in that and i think that is something that takes place when you're improvising and when you're in a certain mindset but you know you still hear like musical phrases that develop somehow that you know it's not i mean to what degree can you break up every pattern you've ever conceived of and just somehow what be random i mean i don't i don't know you know but yeah i would say it's great if people are listening to these tracks and like hearing you know oh okay it sounds like we're going from a written part to something improvised or you know the guitarists are starting to improvise over the part that was being played at the start of the track or whatever yeah i mean like i think you are probably definitely hearing you know when we're switching our approach from a written part to free improvisation but i love so much when people say like i can't tell what parts are written and what parts aren't like that's the you know highest compliment in my opinion because that's kind of like for me that's the difference between soloing and improvising is uh-huh. is this like hey i'm a guitarist i'm going to step out front now and make this about me and i'm going to show you a bunch of things that i can play and the focus will be on me and what is happening right now is called a guitar solo you know versus mm-hmm. like okay you know we're taking the written material and we're sort of embellishing a little bit more on it and what i love to do is have both guitarists solo simultaneously because yes, then they start yeah, to yeah. really feed off of each other and like that is that place that I want to be where it's just skirting that line between like things that are sort of mandated by the composition and things that they're just you know playing because it it's what they're feeling Right. It also sort of breaks down that kind of individual centric model that you're describing of soloing versus like collaborative improvisation where you're collectively trying to create a sound rather than like one person fueling their ego while everyone else just sort of repeats themselves, you know? 100%. I don't actually know too much about your background, so I kind of want to scale this back and get up to the present a bit. I'm going to go about as far back as I can. How did you first start playing drums? I first started playing drums because it was clear from birth, as far as my parents tell me, that I loved music and I was going to play something or do something with music. Mm -hmm. You know, even if it was like dancing, something. Like I was just kind of like, you put music on and I just started kind of like gyrating, you know? So that's, you know, that probably is the entire answer in a way, but like, you know, I also am super ADD and like, I didn't have a tolerance for things that, well, I guess I should say, I think a characteristic of ADD is like, when you're interested in something, you hyper-focus on it. And when you're disinterested, you can try so hard to focus on it and you still can't really like pick up the details the way you can when you're dealing with something that you are so interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think 
when you're when you kind of have a natural musical understanding at a young age and you also have that part of you that like gets frustrated easily it really makes it hard to like learn something by the book that you already kind of feel in your heart <laughs> that was the thing is like my parents would try and you know give me piano lessons or something put me in a class here and there and i just like couldn't really focus on it but then I would go into my room and like write something on piano. Like, I don't know what it was. I just know like when I was seven or eight, I like literally wrote out a thing. I think it was more just to be like, to like say that I wrote something, you know, and to be like, look, I did this thing. I just wanted to do it, I guess. And so by the time I was maybe nine, they got me a drum set and I just, it just made sense because I could follow my ear, you know, I mean, it's, it's, I think when I teach, I'm always trying to like skirt the line between, you know, the natural abilities that the student might have and the book learning because I'm, because all in all, I think if you're a natural musician, the book learning will be easier, not harder, as long as you start from the beginning, not getting frustrated and trying to just say, okay, making music just intuitively should always be the case. And then you're trying to like inform yourself. And, and you're trying to, you know, use the theory or whatever you want to call it to just give you a broader understanding of the intuitive stuff you're doing. So I was essentially what I would consider like a by ear player as a kid, like mm -hmm. from ages nine to probably eighth grade, you know, probably nine to 15 or something. It was just like, I just played stuff by ear and just was so, you know, hungry for new music or whatever that I was just constantly like trying to play along to whatever I was into. So what kind of stuff were you playing along with at that time? Like what were you getting excited about as a young musician? So, you know, I always had an ear that gravitated towards just stuff that sounded different than other things. And, you know, as cliche as that is like, you know, weird stuff just got me in a certain place. And it's mm -hmm. just like, I've always kind of gravitated towards things that sounded different. But the other thing is, you know, I think in this regard, I kind of went full circle because jazz, which I'll get to in a second, but like, you know, studying music and, and specifically jazz, it was almost like a detour. Like the stuff that I was into in eighth grade is probably closer to what I'm into now than it was when I was in college. But so it's really funny because I was listening to the drummer from Cleric on a podcast he said this and i couldn't believe it because it was exactly what i've been saying to people for my whole life the two drummers that like got me you know super into it and that i basically tried to just copy were tim alexander from primus okay yeah yeah the original primus drummer and mm -hmm. uh danny carey from tool gotcha yes that's definitely i thought danny carey was a, a big thing for me too right around that same like when I was in like ninth grade, that, that shit yep. just completely blew my mind. So you were playing along to, were you also into other sort of like 90s alternative metal, alternative rock sort of stuff at the totally. time? Totally. That was, that was like 100% my vibe, you know, as far as like, you know, when I was 10, 11, 12, whatever, and like I'm 37. So this is, you know, 91, 2, 3, 4, like that time period. Loved anything, you know, 90s alt rock grunge style and there was a little bit of overlap too where like 
you know, my dad was into the new rock that was coming out at that time too, because he's like a classic rock guy. But then like, right. you know, this was still like part of the evolution of, of rock music. Um, and so like we had this overlap of like, I was kind of into some of the, you know, 70s stuff he was into, but then I would show him like Primus and Dinosaur Jr. and Nirvana and whatever else. And then the older I got, the more the weird stuff like kept sparking my interest. And when I say weird, I mean like, sure, at that age too, like I, you know, some things that might've been considered weird for the sake of weird, like probably might've like sparked my interest, but like, but also just dissonant. I think I, at an early age, I didn't know what that was. I didn't know, I, I couldn't have told you why I liked the thing that I liked, but like dissonance of all forms, like sounded good to my ear. And like the, mm -hmm. the band that is still my favorite band of all time that like kind of artistically, I think defines a lot about what I'm going for is Sonic Youth. Cause like that was another one where it was just like, I, I'll never forget, I used to, back in the day you would just take a cassette tape and like turn the radio on and just let the tape record and whatever came on you just check it out and I, I remember sonic youth bull in the heather came on and it, it made it onto one of my tapes and i was just listening to it like this is weird and i feel like uncomfortable and it like feels kind of like you know sexual but like i'm too young to really get that but at the same time i feel something weird you know and like right and it's it's just like you know, I'm just like, what's going on here? And I think that was, you know, then I started just seeking out anything like that I di felt like I didn't understand or that was just like kind of ugly or scary or whatever, you know, and that became, that became kind of a direction that I followed all the way to jazz, which you could argue I got into simply because I was like, I don't understand this at all. Mm -hmm. I don't get it. What's happening? Like, I usually feel like I understand most of the elements of things I listen to. And now I have no idea what's going on. So more of this, please, you know? Yeah. Um, so there's like an intellectual curiosity to it. Totally. And it almost became a thing of like, you know, and I think when you're young too, you can fall into this easily of like competing with yourself or like, or, you know, challenging mm -hmm. yourself. And it turned into, in a way, an almost like athletic I, you know, I mean, I don't know how, what you want to call it, but it became not just about like my artistic like preferences, but about a challenge to myself of w how far I could, you know, push myself or how proficient I could be and what kind of styles I could learn, which is a rabbit hole that can be a horrible like place to go. But it, but it, at that moment, it made sense. Like once I was in eighth or ninth grade and I was listening to John Coltrane Giant Steps and I was just like, what? is this like yeah yeah, yeah. You, you know and so where, where were you getting that jazz stuff from were you like learning that from teachers or were you still self-taught like how did you stumble into jazz to begin with i stumbled into jazz because of my maybe one and a half friends that were musicians that were also in a similar situation like so i grew up in st louis suburbs mm -hmm. um in a random place not much like art going on, not much like diversity of opinion, you know, like, like just your typical, you know, kind of square place. But, you know, obviously I was obsessed with music and it defined my whole life, even when I was a kid. Uh, in elementary school, I didn't really, I mean, I had a couple neighbor, I had like one neighborhood friend that played guitar 
you know, and liked like metal stuff. So like we would jam and he used to tell me about this friend of his who was like legendary because he was such a great bassist or something. And then I met that kid in junior high at the jazz band audition. And then he became like my closest friend to this day. His name's Noah Wheeler. And yeah, I mean, the two of us were just like always trying to check out new stuff, but we just didn't really have like, like we'd have to have a friend of a friend tell us or, you know, like there would be, there was like one jazz club where like the whatever touring acts would always come through. And the thing about like jazz still to this day is probably true. And especially then, like everyone knows about the jazz greats, <laughs> but to find out some kind of modern contemporary artist, you'd have to like know someone that was like in that scene. Cause it wasn't like, mm -hmm. like people don't talk about, you know, modern jazz musicians, the way they talk about Charlie Parker and Miles Davis and John Coltrane or whatever. So, so yeah, it was really just totally random. Cause my friend and I were almost the only ones. And we knew a couple other kids that went to other high schools that were also kind of in a similar situation, but it was literally like, you know, maybe four of us total in that whole, you know, in a huge suburban area, just being like, hey, have you heard this? Hey, have you heard this? So yeah, so, and I would say the fact that jazz crosses into the academic world helped because then it was like, okay, now we have a place to play and we have a, you know, now I get to essentially practice. And so that, that helped, even though I didn't get along with my band teacher at all. That's another, <laughs> another conversation, but um, oh, I'm, I'm sensing a continuum of willful individualism in your musical career here. So that this kind of lines up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, you know, and I think it's the type of thing that like, you don't think it's that like, individual, until you're out in, you know, in a, I don't want to say out in the world, because out in the world, it becomes less individual. And it is a bigger thing. But like, you know, in the sense of being from not a huge city it's like you get set on what you're set on and then you realize oh other people don't know or care about this do they mm. you know and like it was actually a thing that kind of i don't know how to put it i mean like when i arrived in the city for college to study music one of my first realizations was like oh shit like some of these people have been doing this like this entire time. Like some of these people have been like learning from the greats and surrounded by talented people through high school, you know? And like, mm. here I am with this like undeserved ego because there was no one else around me to like put that in check. And I'm realizing like, like, no, that's just cause you only know this like one place that's not heavily involved in what you're involved in. So so yeah, so I, you know, I would say it was 98% just like like-minded friends, you know, showing me stuff. And then the rest would just be, okay, you know, you're encouraged by the fact that like, you know, there's all state jazz band and there's other, you know, there's like, like the, you know, especially for me who didn't like school much, like this was a way that I felt like, oh, I actually like am doing something well at school you know mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so you pursued that all the way when you said the city previously i'm assuming that you mean new york city mm -hmm. yeah so basically so yeah so that was my situation and then in high school 
I mean, I don't know how long it, I don't even know when I started thinking about it, but it was like, okay, that's what I want to do. I want to study jazz in the city, in New York City. And, you know, and it kind of just, especially for jazz specifically, it's just kind of an obvious, well-known thing, or at least it's a conventional wisdom that like, that's the only place. I shouldn't say the only place, but that's the most serious place. And right. if you're trying to literally, I mean, just like with any scene, like certain scenes are based in certain areas. And like, if you're trying to get in with a, a very specific group of musicians, it makes sense that there's a limited amount of places you could go, you know, and, and my friend Noah, who is, like I said, my best friend, same thing. He's a bassist. And he was like, yep, right after high school, I want to go to the city and study music. So he went to William Patterson um, and he was a year older than me. So he went there in 2000 and then I went to new school um, in 2001. And yeah, but I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of why I didn't even really put a proper timeline to that whole story that took me so long to tell, because it's just <laughs> like, it's basically the same story, just slightly morphing, like, you know, music, 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 and then different levels of like ego check and different levels of being exposed to music that I was so far from anything I had heard that like, I almost had to rethink, you know, my whole understanding. Yeah. And then, you know, after college, you get into the whole thing of like, second guessing your own perception, because someone you really respect has a different point of view. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But <laughs> also so when, another huge conversation. When you got into jazz, and when you started studying it seriously, and you know, going to school for it, what were the, the drummers or jazz musicians that you gravitated gravitated to because you could go a bunch of different ways when it comes to studying jazz so right what did you latch on to in particular about that genre so when i teach i try so hard to like tell students things that i really wish someone had like explained to me then because mm -hmm. there's so many things where i think like and not that i sit up at night thinking about it but just like what could i have maybe gotten a head start on if I hadn't been sort of blinded by this or that. And I would say that one of those things was that like, you kind of had to focus on traditional jazz to have any credit or validity or, I mean, it sounds so ridiculous, but like, you know, even today in that whole world, there's people that make music that has nothing to do with what they're actually interested in, what they listen to, but they do it because it's like pure traditional jazz or whatever it is. And like the academia in that scene, like expects you to make that music. Right. So like I gravitated towards, well, I guess backing up still, I gravitated towards anything I didn't understand, but I was separating, I was compartmentalizing like what, I was told was jazz away from things that have all those components, but the style is not, you know, traditional jazz or the instrumentation is not traditional jazz. So my listening was kind of split up into two pieces because I was still, you know, my back when we carried a Walkman and CDs or whatever, I still had all my Sonic Youth albums and I still had whatever like i'm trying to think of what what like non-jazz i was listening to at the time because it's like you know it really was like the same stuff i was listening to like i probably had you know mr bungle sonic youth uh maybe like 
some Slayer, you know, nothing too like, like crazy, but just like some staples of my previous life. Sure. Yeah, and then everything yeah. else was just straight up jazz. Like everything else, I mean, I worked my way up from Coltrane, Miles, like late 50s, you know, more traditional, like Miles Quintet and Giant Steps and stuff into, well, not, okay, well, then there's Miles Quintet is the 60s Miles, but whatever, um, you know, into more free jazz. I mean, and really, like even within one artist that went from, you know, the late 50s, early 60s into the late 60s or early 70s, that is kind of like the entire spectrum. Like if you're, if you were like, I'm only going to listen to Coltrane, but I'm going to start with Giant Steps or start with like Blue Train or something and work up to like live in Seattle or something. Or Ascension or, you know, the, the yeah, really- right. Right. I mean, and that's an exceptional artist. I mean, you can't say that it's, you definitely can barely say that about anyone else besides Coltrane. So, mm-hmm. so, okay, fine. But Miles had the same, like there was a similar trajectory of like, okay, I want to keep pushing forward and I don't want to like be stuck clinging on to an old way of playing. So I'm going to not do that. And he, he put his mark on that music, but made it like rock. And he made it something you could play at Woodstock and kids whose parents liked, you know, the old Miles Davis records probably, you know, their kids thought like Bitches Brew sounded amazing, especially if they were all on acid. They probably <laughs> thought that was the best thing they ever heard. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and the, the, the great thing about Miles is that he he kept pushing into areas where I think his music didn't necessarily get good, but it was interesting. Like a lot of the sort of experimentation mm-hmm. with hip hop near the end of his right, life. Right, right, right. It's like, it, this isn't necessarily successful in the way that his experiments with rock music is, but it's like, well, that's awesome that he's still trying shit, you know? Oh, yeah. Like, as a musician, I feel like you have to look at those examples of people not settling into old age as, like, a, a torch, you know, in the darkness. Right. Like, that's so cool. Right. And, and you know, and I, it reflects on your age, certainly, and, like, that's that element of it where, you know, you want to move forward with the times and not sort of, like, talk about how the music from whatever time period you love is better. But then it's also just an insular thing at this point with jazz, because now it's not even about age. If you're in a certain social circle, you just make traditional jazz. And I don't, there's nothing wrong with it. I just don't quite understand like in what other genre do people just keep trying to recreate you know, like, sure, there's fads, you know, like, I mean, there's, you know, like a sound that might have been popular. And then 20 years ago, some bands sort of bring that sound back and incorporate it into what they're doing. But like, almost trying to recreate just something that could have been written in the late 50s, just to like make the academic, you know, side of your scene, like, credit you. I think the internet has done an amazing job in, in, breaking that up and making that seem quaint yeah like the the explosion of like the london jazz scene and like the the, its connection to like south african music and Mm -hmm. shit like that is like i never would have come across a lot of that sort of stuff if it wasn't for the internet and I, i feel like the internet has made it so that like if you're the kind of person who's into like what's going on in la or what's going on in london you can spread that to fans who 
would otherwise write off jazz as being what you're describing, which is like the, you know, cocktail lounge music. Right. I mean, and in some ways, Horace Torso is at the risk of sounding however it sounds. Like, it almost proves that, like, you know, jazz training or understanding or sensibility or whatever is just like a way of hearing music. It has nothing to do with the genre. It's an approach to music. It just opens up certain possibilities. And like, I really do believe that like anyone who listens to music that they consider to be extreme or they consider to be whatever type of edge it is that they sort of crave or that like gets them off, like you can use those elements to get through to that person in a visceral way that is not academic, that has nothing to do with theory that you know like you can get a visceral response from something that could also be analyzed and you know like treated like like the reason that it is effective or good or means something is because of all these whatever advanced techniques techniques, yeah or even like categorization of techniques really because the only reason that anything works is because it works in the material world not in the theoretical one you know (laughs) right (laughs) that's a great way of putting it honestly i mean like that's that would be a great way to respond to that sort of mindset. And I mean, I, I don't know. I don't think that the people who have that mindset necessarily realize that they do, or if they do, they have this really like well thought out reason why they do. And like, I'm not here to say that that's wrong. You know, I mean, people should make the music that they're, that's speaking to them. I mean, mm-hmm. of it is it like, I think it held me back from making the type of music that was really speaking to me because I was like, oh yeah, you got these crazy ideas now, make sure they're executed in this way that's jazz so that this person and this person, you know, will respect you. I mean, like when you're, you know, 19 and and there's no social media, I think it's easy. And you're just like, so like, this is connected to you succeeding at what you want to do. So whether my ear understood what someone was trying to tell me or not, you know, I'm just trying to, I mean, what do I know? You know, right, like I'm right. just trying to like make them think that I have some value and that with some work I could get somewhere. You know? So how did you break through that to get to the point where you could do horse torso, which I, to my understanding is like exactly what you want to do. Like this seems like a very idiosyncratic, pure expression kind of project. So what was the process getting from, conforming to the academic ideal to expressing purely in the way that you are now? Well, my process was to wait 37 years and then like understand some things about yourself and life. Um, I don't recommend that process, but at the same (laughs) time, I think I'm lucky to have gotten to it now and not in another 15 years. But It was a long, slow process. Um, I think the thing that probably started it was wanting to listen to music that could not be further, I shouldn't say could not be further, but in some instances could not be further from this music that I'm supposed to be, excuse me, that I'm supposed to be making. Mm -hmm. It really, it, you know, I can't necessarily pinpoint a specific like moment of clarity but I guess it's possible that it was just my tastes slowly evolving or devolving back in that direction. But I do think it started with like the, cause I've always been 
like drawn to the aesthetic of an artist and, and traditionally or initially like much, much, much more than anything that has to do with songwriting or anything that has to do with the content of the music itself. It's like, if you, you know, use the wrong distortion pedal, I'm turned off already, even though like <laughs> you might be about to do something brilliant, like my sort of narrow mind or narrow focus was so tied into just like things about the vibe and the sound and the whatever. And, you know, I would say by 2008 or nine, this is, you know, I graduated in 05. So it's like, I just more and more didn't want to listen to that. I mean, like the jazz I was listening to was like the most insane experimental music that basically, in my opinion, somewhat transcended being jazz like I, the type of thing that you might be able to show to someone that doesn't listen to jazz and they might be like, oh, this is cool because it's just kind of intense and, and crazy. But yeah, I mean, it, it just, it happened slowly. And then I was listening to more like chaotic, like instrumental math rock type of bands like Hella. I got super into Hella. Uh-huh. And then I started checking out more bands like that, like Terra Mellos and, you know, Lightning Bolt. And like, and then, and then I should also say too, like, one good thing about new school was like, it's very non-traditional. So like my wife, for instance, went to Manhattan school of music and they are very traditional and very by the book. And new school is very like, you know, there's a scene for everybody. And like, you know, you're going to find your people that like electronic stuff and you're going to find your people that like metal stuff. And I mean, like, you know, I had, teachers showing me Meshuggah at school. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Like that would have been right around the time that like Meshuggah became like the hip metal band to like among music nerds, you know? Totally. Totally. <laughs> like I think I had one Meshuggah album before college and it was like when music was that technical, I would really like it, but I would never really like tell myself like, this is technical. I don't know. For some reason I never really like, would say, oh, this is in this other category of being technically challenging. I was just like, okay, it's just, this is crazy. And I like that. And Mm -hmm. then like, you know, my drum teacher at new school was like breaking down all the like rhythmic patterns in a Meshuggah track. And like, so all that stuff combined and the free jazz stuff too, because at at some point that becomes like metal. I mean, like, so there's a lot of free jazz groups I know that like, if they were on a bill with, meth and car bomb or something like people would love that shit like um do you know battle trance battle trance no i do not i'll have to check them out oh yeah battle trance is four tenor saxophonists just creating absolute chaos <laughs> that's so sick to the point where like when it's it's one of those it's like when when there's silence everyone is like on edge like what's about to, like it's totally silent but uh anyway so so yeah, there, I can't pinpoint any particular moment. It's just that like, it became clear that my tastes as a listener were going away from jazz. And also I knew much earlier than that, that like this type of music was sort of out of step with like the forward motion of society (laughs) so I never cared about it but it was in the back of my mind and then I think once my taste started to get away from that then it became like oh yeah like now I see why jazz is like a joke like it's literally like the butt of jokes like that's it's the type of thing you know like the they'll joke about it on like Parks and Rec or they you know like movies like Whiplash come out and the only people that don't like it are the musicians because they like (laughs) have no no sense of humor about it and they're like mad that the world 
isn't accurately analyzing their their thing you know right well, I mean, um, Whip, whiplash is its own case because it's a sports movie in jazz clothing you know <laughs> like it really is it really is I, i'm not I the first one to that. make that take I, I that's but like you watch that movie i remember after it came out like kobe bryant tweeted about like oh this is like my favorite movie of the year and it's like <laughs> of course it is you know yeah well and like you know apparently i never had this i mean i had some you know disgruntled teachers but like I never had someone where there was a psychological warfare taking place. Like I never had someone exploit that to that degree. So like my initial response was kind of like, yeah, this as a movie, this is hilarious, but like, you know, maybe I don't necessarily relate to that element, but at the same time, I very much relate to the element of like worshiping somebody to the point where they could do that. Right. And you'd probably go along with it as a college student, you know? Yeah, it's sort of to your point about, like, as a a young musician, it's really easy to get into a sort of sports mindset about it. I think with drums especially, just because it's, like, such a physical instrument and, you know, it kind of, like, appeals to, like, a sort of, like, macho sense of control or something. Yeah. You know? So I, the thing that I thought was like most relatable about that movie is the sequence where it's like him competing against the other drummers, mm-hmm. you know, like that sort of stuff. I was like, oh, well, it was never that bad at music school, but absolutely that's like tapping into a real feeling. Oh yeah. No, I mean, and it, it, it could be that bad. Cause like, I mean, the first thing we did at new school was have to perform in front of the entire school. Like that was like the second day. It's like, you're all in a big performance space and they're calling random names. Like you don't even know who you're going to play with. You just get up and play. And like, you know, that's when I think about how maybe social media would have ruined me because like I had an undeserved ego. And if I had Instagram, I wouldn't have had that. I would have like, I would have been like, oh, there's six year olds that are way better than me. (laughs) And then maybe that would have like ruined my entire college career or maybe I wouldn't even be a drummer right now because it's just like I needed to initially be too confident to then be able to settle into like okay this is going to be a longer journey and this is going to be humbling like that's the I think that's the key point this is going to be very humbling in a way you're not used to but you love it it's your whole life so who cares but you know if I had been that humbled that quickly at a young age, who knows? Who knows if it would have changed me? Yeah, there's a difference between gaining humility and getting humiliated, you know? Right, right. You can't always take one from the other. I do want to talk about the social media stuff because you've been talking about how you're teaching and how you know you have your YouTube channel and I know you post a lot of stuff on Instagram as well. And one of the things I've noticed, like this is kind of like especially relevant these days when, you know, in the last six months or so when everyone's online all the time and no one can play shows anymore. But even before that, I think like there's, there's just been this huge explosion of like Insta choppers or like Insta drummers and all that right. sort of stuff. Like what's your take on, as someone who didn't come up with all of that social media presence and like in- internet drumming, like what right. do you make of that whole scene? Um, okay, so <laughs> I want to preface because, you know, people have opinions and stuff, and I respect those opinions. You know, I fully respect that for a lot of artists, there's no way to make a short clip of what they do that's digestible 
and still keep their artistic vision intact or make what it is you truly want to make. Like, I think that a lot of artists have interesting, like, relationships with that or they have like a adverse reaction to posting clips or posting certain things because they feel like they've now changed their entire approach just to conform to that system and to promote even promoting i think a lot of musicians are ashamed to promote themselves mm-hmm. but to me the internet generally is the great equalizer and it brings me back to what I wanted to be true in the late 90s. And it wasn't true then, and it's true now. Part of the appeal of jazz to me was like, okay, this is an abstract enough art form that how could there possibly be politics involved in this world? Because it's so abstract that how could this be something that's just as, you know, about power and about things that, don't have anything to do with the merit. Like I just, when I was, before I went to college, I thought this is going to transcend politics. This is going to be about the art and nothing else, which sounds naive about any, anything in the world. But when you're, you know, that age and that mindset, it's like, okay, you're looking for something that has that purity to it. So I thought that, and then I moved and realized that wasn't quite the case. And Now, I think it is the case because it doesn't matter where you live, you can set up an Instagram account, you can show me you're playing. If people like it, they will follow you. And even if it's slow going and you're not like, you know, you're adding five people here, five people there, if they're people that really appreciate what you're doing, that's better than a hundred people that just like heard about you because of some label or because you're the drummer in some band. So like, those are people that actually really like what you're doing. I I mean, I even, because I was so worried about coming off as soliciting or coming off as like putting content on a page that it doesn't belong on, like, okay, this is horse torso, but I'm putting stuff that I wrote, playing drums over it and talking about the meters and things like that. I did a little poll on my Instagram story one day, just like, hey, like, what do you think about these drum videos? Do you, should I not put these on here or is it cool? Because it's like, whatever, I'm going to do them either way. But like, I just don't see anything wrong with like a palatable package of something you're doing, even if that's not the totality of it, you know? So Sure. Well, I think for your music specifically, like I would imagine that the response to that poll was largely positive. Exactly. That's why I didn't stop doing it because I was overwhelmed by the amount of people that were like, no, keep doing it. Like we're, Mm -hmm. that's why we started following yeah exactly like especially with horse torso's music it's so appealing i think it, it's it's especially appealing to people who care about these kinds of musical like deep dives and like bringing the microscope down on particular musical elements mm-hmm. like that showing your your audience like how you get to that process wh- how you develop these skills like what your musical interests are in that same sort of intellectually curious exploratory way uh adds it kind of deepens the relationship with the music itself Mm -hmm. and so you'd be doing yourself a huge disservice if you weren't finding that way to like strengthen that connection with the people that listen to your music that's kind of how i see it you know um like i said like i fully respect why a lot of artists don't do it and hey like if anything I need it. Like, I'm not going to sit here and say like, 
that isn't solely responsible for a lot of things that have helped me be able to put out music, you know? And like, like it's all part of the same thing. Like, that's what I feel lucky about too, is it's like, okay, there's a musician element to things. So like, that's one thing that we can discuss. That's a whole thing. That's a whole topic of conversation and appeal. And then there's just the, you know, weird sounding music that just has whatever kind of energy that's appealing to people and has nothing to do with anything. <laughs> it's, it's a Rorschach test. I mean, like, that's sure. kind of how I've described, like, our music to be is just, like, I, I realize there's enough technical elements that, like, if, if your ear analyzes that, it's going to go right there and it's going to be unavoidable and, it's, and you can't necessarily unhear those things if you are already of that mindset. But when people that aren't at all trying to analyze the music have a positive response, that to me is like way more, imp I don't know. That just, that's the because I just go back to that place of like, before I was analyzing any of this, what was appealing to me? Like just the, the visceral reaction that didn't have to be based on something or explained to someone. It just was, you know? Yeah, sort of to the flip side of the point that I made is that if you're only making music for other musicians, you're shooting yourself in the foot. Like, right. Well, just on a, like a purely financial level, musicians are not going to be able to pay your rent, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and very much the case. And also, I think like it only works if it works to someone who doesn't see the magic trick, you know? Exactly. Exactly. And, and that's kind of back into the blending of, the type of music that I'm trying to make because even though you could see it that way and you could identify, you know, the point that something goes from written material to improvisation, you know, it's still a blurry line and there's still, well, and you know what, even beyond that, every time we play the songs, they're going to sound totally different, not just because of the improvisation, but because, we might just decide to like one section is going to go longer. I mean, a lot of the sections are cued when we play them live, but mm -hmm. they're like, they were like a set amount for the tracks. So like we might, you know, if we're playing and I'm thinking, Oh, we're probably about to like go back to this next part. But then I see that smiley is just going crazy or whatever. And I can, I'm like, this guy is like, out in outer space somewhere like this we should let him continue his journey <laughs> sure yeah 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 i think because i studied music i'm unqualified in a certain way to like speak on the more visceral stuff because it might be hard to really see it the way that someone else would see it if you're not of that analytical mindset mm -hmm. but the music that i'm inspired by like as far as my writing is all music that I was, or mostly music that I was listening to before I even heard jazz, you know? Yeah, that's the, another thing that I find really interesting about Horse Torso is it doesn't seem like it belongs to any one particular scene. Like I mm -hmm. first heard you guys at like Mathcore Index yes. in, uh, in Brooklyn. And obviously you guys were playing music that was very different from everything else in that mm -hmm. festival but it was like oh of like if you were generally into this vibe this sort of like really intense dissonant rhythmically uncomfortable vibe you're gonna right. like this band too but it seems like you guys can kind of exist in a, in a variety of different worlds so i was interested in getting your take on where exactly 
you fit in because you're not a metal band you're not a punk band you're also not a jazz quartet either so like what exactly is going on here (laughs) i hope that nothing more than what you just said goes on for too long because that's honestly before the first horse torso horse torso i can't even say it um (laughs) before the first horse torso album came out that's exactly what i was hoping would happen Mm -hmm. is like people are like okay i don't know how to classify this but like i could see it coming at me from different angles and like depending on what I already listened to, like, that's where the context for this comes from. And like, it's just weird enough to like, give me that energy that maybe I usually get out of heavier music. But that's, that's what I wanted. What you described is what I hope listeners kind of, you know, get stuck on is like, Mm -hmm. what exactly is this? Because, you know, it's hard in a lot of ways to not fit into a scene but i think in the end it will be a rewarding thing i don't know i just it's just the only way i know how to make music you know and i think that that was even when i was studying jazz and i was writing music that was you know for piano and sax and bass you know maybe like a quartet or something it still had that same i mean like you could probably listen to something that i wrote in college And hear some elements of like what might sound like horse torso because it still had the certain rhythmic components and the certain like dissonant stuff and stuff that didn't necessarily belong with most of the jazz that was coming out at that time. Mm -hmm. Because Mm -hmm. the avant-garde element is like metal. I mean, honestly, the stuff that, you know, a lot of the free improv people are doing is heavier than anything anyone's ever heard. Like it, I mean, go to I don't, the stone doesn't exist anymore i guess i think the stone closed um right. that, that was zorn's place yeah zorn's place on avenue i guess it was avenue c or d i think it was avenue c like like in maybe first or second the shows they had there like you could go on a random night to a random set and like just have your mind completely blown and i think that a lot of people who have never even listened to anything like that if they get off on the same components of music that like, I mean, it's just energy, you know, it's just an energy. Sure. It's just, uh, you know, I don't even know. I don't I'm not even articulate enough to say what it is, but you know, it's, there's just something undefinable that like captures that same spirit where it's like, you don't need it to be the instrumentation you're used to. You just need that sort of, you know, feeling to be present. Right. Um, that sort of gut punch is the, the, the word I always go to is like that sense that you're like being physically moved almost against your will by the music itself. You know? Oh yeah, absolutely. No, I mean like that was like, I would say maybe back to the thing you asked me earlier about like a moment where I sort of like flipped the switch back in the other direction from jazz. I think it was listening to more progressive jazz because mm you know, even within that instrumentation, within what would still be called jazz, people were doing things that like, were, I mean, just sounded like an explosion, you know, and they would go on. I mean, and this isn't even, it wasn't even new at that point. I mean, that had been happening. I mean, like we were talking about Coltrane. I mean, like that, you know, honestly, I don't know how anyone could really come close to anything like that 
ever. And that's, you know, so at this point, 60 years ago, you know, yeah. Yeah, right, exactly. So, um, yeah, I think I'm more and more music is going to become undefinable as time goes on, or at least music that stays around, because obviously at this point, it's a confusing time for like rock. I mean, it's on its deathbed, some say, which I don't know if I agree with, but I mean, like I, you know, obviously genres age how they age and it's, you know, it's not the newest genre for sure. And, you know, generationally, like instrumentation wise, like, you know, younger generations ears might be, you know, gravitating towards more electronic stuff and less guitar. But sure, but even then, like I feel like we're reaching this interesting point where people are making mid two thousands emo music just with eight oh eights. You know, right. So like the idea that we're getting to this point where like rock music has no influence on popular culture is right. Like objectively false. It's just being right. played on different timbres. So like, what right. are we actually talking about here? You know, it's, right. Yeah, I mean, like, I don't agree with the sentiment so much. I think that it's kind of like, that's probably part of why extreme metal and other types of extreme music is really in like a renaissance period right now, because the only place to go is insanity, you know? And like, <laughs> and I, I think at this point, it's not forced. It's, it's a natural place to be now, you know? It's, it, that's the evolution is, you know, the extreme forms are now becoming more extreme because they still have places they can go, you know, and, and tech, more music's becoming technical, you know, and like, whenever I, it's interesting, like, whenever I'm working on something by like a 90s heavier band, like with one of my students, you know, like a, a sound garden or a whatever, and you start to realize, like, those are some of the mathiest songs ever but like they weren't called that because it was still just part of the current state of music i mean like you know they were sneakily progressive in that way yes um no you know like no one cared that like soundgarden had a bunch of really weird meters in their in the sections to their songs because it sounded like regular music to the average listener but it was happening and now mm -hmm. it's it's just, you know, more, the more that people's ears start to understand that stuff, the more it makes its way into everyone's music. So I, I would like to focus specifically on the, the latest horse torso record, Micro Pianist. And so I feel like the first thing that I have to ask is starting from the title and just going through the, the titles in general. I know you posted on your Instagram recently that a lot of the titles were inspired by comedy and like particular comedians or shows that you like. So what do you feel like the function of like humor is in your music? Because it, I think that's another common response to really extreme music is to be like, what the fuck? You know, like, right. there's kind of like a punchline element to some of it. Totally, totally. That's one of those things too, that it's like, I always did that just because like, it felt so forced to like be dramatic about my instrumental song titles. And honestly, it's also, I think, at least for me, coming out of that ultra serious world of music school, where it's mm -hmm. like, you know, people are releasing albums called like, staring into the horizon with the heart of gold. Like, I mean, like, it's just like, it's all this stuff that sounds like a Hallmark card. Right. Like they're right. trying to be so deep and emotional. And it's like a picture of them, like on a mountain with their saxophone, you know, it's just like, <laughs> it's so ridiculous, you know? And like, 
even when jazz was like my thing, like that's like, I'm, this is what I'm doing. This is what I love. This is my focus. I just, I was never able to like, that was never something that made its way to like my artistic mindset. Cause it just was just like, are you serious? Like really? And it, it was, I think that was one of the first signs of how like insular and how like, you know, at the risk of isolating myself and having so many people not like me anymore, you know, the irrelevance <laughs> of it all you know, just these people taking themselves so seriously. And it just turned me off so much. So I always, you know, had stupid song titles, uh, even just in college. It was just what I did. Or it would be like, you know, back to my ADHD brain, like just some weird specific thing I thought of or thing that I did or like said or whatever. And I'm just like, what? Okay, just out of like, my you know a flippant attitude like this is gonna be my song title i don't know like i just pictured like how uncomfortable everyone would be when they said micropianist um <laughs> and i was like how could that not be it you know and my dumb brain is always just thinking of stupid like puns so like but then what was great was like my wife got me to commit fully to the concept of like yeah like in the cover will be like because like, i was like oh yeah like the cover should be like literally like a tiny piano player and like and she's like yeah well it should be like in a spoon for scale. So you like really know like, <laughs> like how tiny this pianist is. Yeah, I mean, like that's just always been my approach to song titles. You know, I guess in another way too, it's relevant to the current climate we're in where there's a lot of men with issues wreaking havoc. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe, you know, there's an homage to that. That was another thing my wife kind of pointed out. I'm like, oh, that's totally like spot on. But, uh, but yeah, so, you know, and then, yeah, the, the handful of them were just lines from comedies. Terry from Reno 911, aka Nick Swardson, I was murdered. And then I learned about the Buddy Rich tapes because of this. So this guy, this is not my kind of guy. So that song title um, I took from Seinfeld when Frank Costanza is talking about, you know, he was dating a woman in Korea whose father didn't like him. And he said this thing, which translates to this guy, this is not my kind of guy. But it turns out Seinfeld took that line from the Buddy Rich tapes, which are a series of recordings done by one of Buddy Rich's bandmates on their tour bus, because Buddy Rich apparently just used to berate his musicians and just go on these long rants that were so ridiculous and just right. lose his shit. And so someone records it and they become this like, you know, legendary archive. And, and as Seinfeld tells it, like comedians know about it. It's like a wealth of like comedic material and they like know about it and like talk about it, you know? Right, so right. he lifted a few lines. So that's, so that's apparently where that one com comes from originally. And yeah, Boom Boy by Foop is Titus Andromedon from Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, uh -huh, which uh -huh. is a great show. And that guy specifically is just a very enjoyable guy. And then I think Titus those, Burgess, I believe, is the name of the actor. Titus Burgess is his real name, yep. yeah. And the only other show I know that he did is this thing on Quibi. That, and Quibi is this strange network that it's like just an app that only has 10-minute long shows or five-minute long shows or something. Right. I remember it um, launched like right at the beginning of the coronavirus thing and like bombed pretty spectacularly yeah. as a result. You're like, oh, cool. Now I'm tired of holding my phone. So never mind. <laughs> yeah. The only other thing I know of him doing is this thing where it's actually kind of hilarious. It's like a, a cooking show, but really what it is is they blindfold these chefs and then they 
throw food at them and splatter it all over them. And then they have to taste it and try to figure out what the ingredients are. And, <laughs> and then they have to cook what they think it is. Oh, it's really, yeah. I'll, when I, that's good. When, that's I good. when we're done, I'll figure out what that's called. And well, so the point that I was kind of getting at is like, do you feel like part of the intention of the music itself is to be sort of funny, you know? Oh, like, I mean, yeah. I mean, yes, because I think like, a certain degree of confusion is inherently funny. And I think that, I don't know, everything about it really, I mean, the, just even the harmonic content of the music. Like, I know it's just kind of a weird abstract place to go, but it's like, it could either be frightening or hilarious. So mm -hmm. while there might be layers of, of frightening buried in there, there's also potentially a zaniness Right. Like those are the sort of the two places that dissonance gets used in popular culture is funny sounding stuff and scary sounding stuff. Totally. Totally. It's, and it's the type of thing I'd really be interested to hear from people who like our band, like how they perceive that and what they think, because that's the other thing is it's like, I, I like kind of not necessarily knowing what part of it is appealing to a certain person. Because like, I, you know, I'm, I don't want to ever feel, I mean, I don't think I have this capacity, but at the same time, I don't want to ever feel like, okay, clearly the majority of my fan base likes this and that. So maybe my next album should sound more like that. I mean, like, I don't, not that I really, like I said, can, can get myself into that mindset, even if I wanted to, but you know, I don't know, analytics are out there and you can't help but look at them. And like, it's, you know, it is what it is. So I think it is kind of an open question. Like, I think because I'm inspired by comedy, some of it has to kind of come across in the sound of the music. But, who, you know, I think it's probably different for different people. Yeah, that's a tough question. It's, it's funny. Like, it, when you asked it, I, like, started talking before I even knew what to say because I'm like, that seems like something that would be obvious. And then as I thought about it, I'm like, well, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking about the idea of, like, how to move from one record to another what were your aims coming off the first record and going into this one? Like, were there any things about your process in the first record that you wanted to change or improve upon or like specific directions that you felt like you wanted to take the project in? I would say as far as directions for the project, it probably didn't change tremendously, but as far as like how I wanted the batch of songs to sound and like, yeah, the direction I wanted to kind of go in you know, versus the first album, a lot of it breaks down to the different drum beats and grooves that I want to be a part of the music, because I mm. think that's a huge part of my writing process for this particular band. I, there's like a, a particular groove that I want to be the dominant beat or whatever of the song. And then my ideas kind of stem from there. So right. You know, and, and the thing too about my like so-called ideas is it's really just like, that's where my almost repetitive approach comes. Like, like I, you know, have like a template for the type of atmosphere I want there to be. But from that point, I just try things and go with what sounds right to me. And it's a very like Jackson Pollock and then edit your way to a product that sounds exactly how you want it to sound type of thing. But because I always or almost always start with the drum beat, that limits it 
that limits it so much. So mm-hmm. harmonically, there's things that just sort of like, I don't know, it maybe Jackson Pollock is the wrong way to put it. But like, part of it is it's like, if you put one thing out there, immediately my brain's like, okay, well, this thing goes to this thing. Mm-hmm. And so then from that, I say, okay, well, does this thing go to this thing? Because you're, that's where you're sort of repetitive. Like that's where the, you would expect it to go. Right. Muscle and if memory. so, yeah, right. Exactly. So I go through that process for pretty much every composition of like, okay, I'm starting here. And now from this one seed I planted a thousand things kind of appear. It's almost like auto suggests when you're typing a text sure. where it's just yeah, like, yeah, okay, yeah. You might suggest all the wrong stuff, but it's like suggestions are popping up in my mind and now I get to choose from them and I might even be able to just like take one and tweak it by 3% and all of a sudden it's something totally different. But because I, you know, it, it, honestly, it's almost like taking something with endless possibilities and taking something with no more possibilities and then pushing them together because the beat limits you completely and the tonality and the possibilities from that standpoint could go anywhere. Mm-hmm. And, and then I guess the third and final step is just that when something sounds exactly right to me, my brain is like, yes, a thousand percent, this is exactly it. And if it sounds even slightly less than that to me, I have like a, you know, like a crazy obsession with how that's ba- how it's not right. Do you like enlist help from the rest of your band to get over that like 1% difference or how democratic is the writing process? So, okay. So the writing process itself is just me. And on the first album, I don't know why I was so much more organized, but like on the first album, I had all of the forms of the songs fully fleshed out. It was like, okay, I have all the written parts and also I know I want to do this until this section and I want to do this until this part and I want this to be two times or whatever. And I kind of brought it to the rest of the band like, here's exactly what we're doing. But obviously, you know, you're going to improvise here, you're going to improvise there. And then maybe you're going to cue using this thing. But I had all that worked out. Mm -hmm. For, For Micropianist, I had the songs written and some of them I had like, ideas for how long the parts were going to be or how long you know this or that was going to happen but the band really filled in the gaps that like like i you know i put this in the liner notes that the songs were arranged by the whole band because like in the rehearsals leading up to the recording and even just like in the recording itself like you know they were all being like oh what if we do this here what if we you know if this part is shorter or longer or whatever it is So this one was like, you know, while I wrote all the written material, it was very much a collaborative effort in terms of like arranging the material. But what I will say is one of the things, if not the only thing that has always inspired me to write a ton of music, at least since college, was like when I hear an amazing improviser, the first thing my brain says is like, ooh, imagine if you could make them do this and this and this and this and this. Imagine Mm. what that would sound like over this chord change. Imagine what that would sound like over this drum beat. And so the people around me that inspire me give me endless ideas because it's like, I'm just like, ooh, you can do all this stuff. What if I took that thing that you're so good at and we added that to this kind of vibe, Uh you know, and like, it was always like, I, there was a big thing for me and still is of like, 
putting a thing somewhere that it doesn't belong. Like that might be at the, at the core of like what I'm doing when I'm trying, when I'm writing these and what my process is. It's like, I'm trying to take you somewhere and then put something in that place that just like, doesn't seem like it should be there, but somehow exists there and molds its way together with everything else. And your ear says, okay, I accept this. Um, And that's what I used to do in college. And that's what I do now. I mean, now too, with with the musicians I have, like I'm, I'm endlessly inspired by them. And so I, I feel like I won't ever be able to run out of things to do because of them, not because I'm being creative, but because like they're so creative that I'm just like, directing their creativity in different places, you know? Sure. Yeah. I, I feel like that sort of helps explain the difference in organization from record one to record two is like, you now know that your bandmates skills even better in that span of time and know how to sort of give them the space to do what they do best. It, that, at least right. that's what it sounds like to me, the way that you're describing it. Yeah. That's what it feels like, you know, and that's, that's always what writing has felt like for me. Mm-hmm. But now, like the combination of the people that I'm playing with and like where my head is at in terms of what kind of music I want to make and what sound I want. That's why I feel like finally at, at age 37, I'm like, okay, like I know what I'm trying to do. And like, and th- there's no problem other than not having enough money to do it. The, <laughs> <laughs> the, the eternal problem. Yes. The eternal problem <laughs> is my problem. Yep. I do have a question about one specific sound that happens on the record at the start of genuine ostrich the final Mm -hmm. song on the record what is that like what's that i i it was like really difficult for me to tell like is that guitars is that like it's guitar it's guitar okay it's guitar i don't know exactly what effect dustin is using there but it's guitar and there's a few moments on the album where people have been like wait is that like like flute or something, you know? <laughs> right, right. Um, it's interesting too, because like two of the band members have been consistent throughout the entire uh, span of Horse Torso, but the other guitarist role has actually changed twice since mm-hmm. the first album. So on the first album, uh, Travis Reuter, who's someone I went to college with and, and played music for, you know, with, played music with him for a decade probably, he was on the first record. And then he got married and moved to Europe. And then I got another guitarist who stepped in seamlessly. Like my other guitarist, Andrew Smiley, who's been in the band the whole time, is just like hooked into the scene in a way that's just like, you would think like for this kind of music, it's extra hard to find someone that can approach it the right way. And, and it is, but it's also New York City. And like, you know, if there's going to be a place where there's more than one of those people, it's probably (laughs) going to be there. And so like, you know, I, I owe it all to Andrew because it was like, Travis moved. I'm like, oh my God, Travis moved. Like, what am I going to do? He's, he's like my whole like world. Like, what am I going to do? And Smiley's like, oh yeah, like you should hit up this dude, Will Chapin. Like, he's sick. You're like, okay, seamless transition. (laughs) And then Will ended up moving out of the city about a year after that. And then I was in the exact same position. And this happened right before, it was like September, or no, this was like the summer of, of 2019. So like we had a few shows lined up. We had a whole, it was like we had a few shows lined up and they were good shows with cool bands. And then we were going to do the recording the next month. 
And then all of a sudden he's moving and I'm like, oh my God, like my whole like world is crushed. Right, Same thing. And Andrew's one. just like, yeah. And Andrew's like, oh, you should try this person or this person or whatever. And just like immediately I'm like on YouTube watching these amazing people. And it wasn't even just like, oh, you know, see if they want to do it. It would be like someone that he's tight with. Like I talked to Dustin and like he's into it, you know? And it's just like, I mean, I owe my life to that dude because it really was. It was like he found people with the creative approach that made perfect sense who also were interested enough in the project to want to like put time into it you know mm -hmm. and you know dustin had only been in the band i mean that's what's amazing like he his first show with us was in october of 2019 so he played three shows with us in a span of like three months and then he recorded the album you know and it was like we're like okay you know there's certain things we might have to like revisit and patch in or something at the end because we do like live we do everything live because it's kind of impossible not to, but we didn't. I don't think we used any of them because it was like, or we, we, we recorded them. Like at the end, we recorded him doing certain melodies like a second time or whatever. Then I listened back to it and I'm like, no, nah, like first one was good. Like, cool. Like that's, so I just, I'm really lucky. I mean, to me, that was the thing that I gained the most from studying music was like meeting all these creative people that I was lucky enough to like call friends and like work with and who shared a similar like, creative vision i mean that's priceless that is the most yeah. priceless thing anyone making any kind of art i would think could could hope for yeah i mean that's that's incredibly rare i mean even the, sort of the line that i think about i don't know who said it originally but like you know if you're one in a million in new york there are eight of you you know right like, yeah <laughs> but even then to like get someone because i that means that i saw two different guitarists both the times that i've i've seen horse torso Oh, like, uh -huh. because yeah. I saw I saw y'all at Mercury Lounge most recently with, mm -hmm. uh, with Cleric and I did not notice any like appreciable like decrease in quality or like dilution yeah, right? the thing that you guys were going for. Like it still sounded like horse torso. Yeah, um, no, thanks. Um, I mean, yeah, that's well. And it's like that's one thing, too, that it's like in some ways that's inherent in how strange the music sounds mm -hmm. is that like it's hard to escape that quality even if you wanted to you know but it's but it's also like you said it's just that the fact that you're living in a place where like even something that seems kind of like an off-the-cuff strange place to I mean there's there's I don't know there's just so many people that like are going to understand where you're coming from even if you barely know where you're coming from or even if you are like jumping all over the place it's like there's a scene for everybody. And like most people are there because they appreciate what they're doing so much that it's like, I mean, clearly it's not about money. You know, <laughs> yeah. like it's, it's, you want to be involved in projects that mean something. And I'm the same way where it's like, you know, if I really love a project, then I'm doing it because I really love to do it. My, the freelance drummer in me is not the same one that's like, ooh, I, this is really creative stuff. Like I would love to be able to be a part of this. So yeah, I just feel like so many lucky factors came together. I know that everything is kind of up in the air these days, but where do you see the band going next? Like what, what is as far out onto the horizon as you can see, like where is Horse Torso going now? Yeah, um, so much is going to initially depend on what happens with life in New York City, because I think you know, even before COVID, people were 
getting priced out and you know institutions that made it the most relevant place for them to be were closing mm-hmm. and you know they were starting to question like is this still where i need to be and is it still worth whatever sacrifices that are going to become bigger and bigger over time that i'll have to make to remain here you know i think that was already like where a lot of my friends were personally and now that things are what they are you know, for, for so many different reasons, you know, even just the fact that a lot of my friends have no income anymore, you know, Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people are going to be leaving. And I think when, when live music returns, it's a lot is going to depend on, do my band members live here still? (laughs) Um, I mean, like, I don't think that they're, I mean, you know, Nick, our bassist, I'm sure will still be there. His main gig is Baroness. So, oh shit! I of course it is. Now that I now I'm putting two and two together, and it's like that is the guy from Baroness. <laughs> oh yeah, it's a it's a it's the most random connection. You know, I mean, it it's literally random. Like Nick is a good friend from St. Louis, which is my hometown. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a few years younger than me, so like we weren't in college or at the exact same time. But like he went to college, I think in Illinois, and then moved up to the city around 2012 or so, and. Then Andrew, I'm not sure exactly. Like, I, I think he's out of the city for now. You know, who knows? He's bouncing around and Dustin's in the city. I mean, like, you know, nothing's changed really, but it just, so much is going to depend on that, I think. But I just can't wait to get back into just the same type of game plan. I mean, like, it's actually, it's definitely a bummer because like I was trying to plan a lot for this year yeah. and I was even hoping to try and get us to Europe at some point and like, you know, and play some colleges. And I was starting to try, cause part of the thing that I feel like I'm going to have to figure out how to do is to play gigs at colleges that might even be like master classes that might even be more about jazz or more educational. And those gigs, you can make some money. You can afford to then play a few club gigs or bar gigs or whatever the next few nights without losing money you know Mm -hmm. that's a lucky thing that we're able to do if we want is like we all studied jazz so like we could take that kind of gig and then that would be our anchor gig to like you know make a couple hundred bucks or whatever and then you know make nothing the next couple nights and hopefully sell a couple shirts or something so i had plans to do that and we were going to play at suny potsdam uh because i have a friend that like books shows there um, and we were going to, you know, either book something up in like Montreal or, you know, we were just, cause I've been in Catskill recently. So like, it's all on the same little, you know, path, like, you know, playing somewhere in the Hudson Valley and then maybe playing in Montreal or playing in, you know, Rochester or Buffalo or something. Mm-hmm. And I was trying, I was like in the process of like setting that stuff up and then here we are. So, you know, I don't have any particular goal other than to keep writing and releasing music and then as soon as live music returns to get right back on that and i'm hoping to just use this time to build a bigger audience and like you know just reach out to more people and then maybe when things come back to normal we will be in a better place than we were and we'll have more connections and more resources to try and make more gigs happen because that's basically you know where i'm at like 
I can do what I can afford to do. Mm-hmm. And if I get lucky, you know, certain opportunities will allow other things to happen that couldn't otherwise happen. So I, I hope that some people can listen to this podcast and, you know, find your all's music and get inspired and reach out. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to help facilitate if you, if you need to get in front of some other ears and, you know, the minute the, the flag goes down again, I hope we can all be off to the races again. You know, it's, it's absolutely. And I really, really appreciate that because like, that's, you know, that's always important, but like, you know, the more unappealing to most people, your music is the more valuable that stuff is. And like, that's something that like, I'm trying to do as much of as I can just in general too, is just like screaming about bands that I love. Cause I do think there's so much good music coming out right now, Mm -hmm. especially maybe mostly, probably mostly extreme forms of music of every type. I mean, like, you know, from, from chaotic hardcore type of stuff, math core, math rock, free improv, death metal. Yeah. Deconstructed club stuff, like the electronic music, even like some of the more like poppier stuff that like younger people are making now is insane to listen to. Oh, absolutely. And the variety and the like, different places that it goes like that's the thing too is like you know the i feel like there's the two the two like subcategories of music that's you know as kind of odd as what ours might sound like are you know blending everything into one versus going from one sound to a different sound to a different sound kind of like a mr bungle like it's you know right. it's swinging and then it's like double bass or whatever yeah i think that Mr. Bungle approach has rubbed off on a lot of artists in, in a really like they and they've even refined it in a way where now it's more just like their the vibe of their tracks will be so different. Like, like, yep. um, Namdi, do you know Namdi? Oh yeah. 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 I, I lived in Chicago for nine years. So I actually like, Oh, is he a Chicago artist? Yeah. I, I like, know that. I'm not like, like cl- close friends with him, but I I've run into him a bunch of times. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that, that recent album was a definitely an example to me of just like, where, Whoa, like you, you are going all sorts of places and yeah. showing me all sorts of different like skills that like, like no one would have any idea would all be on one album. So, yeah, you know, I mean, it really does mean a lot that, that you're doing this and having weirdos like me on here. And, uh, yeah, no, and just, like, you know, keeping people engaged and interested and aware of, of music that's being created today. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I know that you've – I don't want to – like, there's a ton of stuff to, to stay busy with. So I, I really appreciate you taking out the uh, – the hour plus to talk to me. This has been a really great conversation. Likewise. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you again for listening. And thank you, Daniel, for joining me. You can find Horse Torso's music at horsetorso.bandcamp.com. You can find more episodes of this podcast on the Apple Podcast app or at soundcloud.com slash laminiforms sounds. You can follow me on Twitter at laminiforms underscore or on Instagram at Ian K. Corey. More episodes soon. Until next time.